I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined once again by the great Kim Newman. Kim, welcome back. I'm so pleased to be back uh, after such a, a brief spell away. I know, I know. We can't get enough of you. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome for the first time Prana Bailey Bond, who you may have heard me talk about because uh, she is uh, the maker of a brilliant new film called Censor, which played at the Sundance Film Festival. I understand it's an online version of Sundance, but played at Sundance. And I saw it and it just seemed to me to be a film that was made entirely for me and I I just loved it I thought it was terrific I've actually seen it a few times now and uh, so I said as soon as was possible I would get Prano on and also Kim because this came up in a conversation that Kim and I were having before I'd seen the film that Kim has an exec producer credit on the film so he's been involved in the creation of it in fact I said to you I said, is it as good as I want it to be? And you said, well, I'm an exec producer, so of course the answer to that question is yes. I can, I can now tell you very happily that it is every bit as good as I wanted it to be. So, Prana, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Let me start by asking you, um, just outline the film for those who haven't seen it, because obviously it hasn't opened in the UK yet and won't for a little while, but just tell us what the film's about. Okay, so it's a psychological horror called Censor, and it's set against the backdrop of um, video nasties, the video nasty social hysteria in the kind of early to mid 80s in the UK. And it follows a film censor who sees a film that harks back to the day her sister disappeared when she was a child. And when she investigates the film's director, the, bl- the lines between fiction and reality start to blur. If I hadn't had someone to talk to, I think I might have just, uh, I don't know, lost it. Why do you think he can't remember? Who? The amnesiac killer. Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, why wouldn't he remember? God, it's hard to... Could be basic trauma, brain, it sort of shuts it out. Could have had a bang on the head even, or... But it makes me think of my psychotherapy days. We talk about how people construct stories to cope. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. And, uh, now, I, I don't know because we've not met before, Prano, if it's not a rude question, how old are you? I am. I, I'm 37. I think. I always okay. get. I think I'm 37. That's terrible. I was born in 1982. So yeah. Okay. 
So you were born, but you can't have been, you know, obviously you're not old enough to remember the video nasties panic as Kim and I, who lived through it as wizened old <laughs> yes. warriors that we are. What what was the thing that drew you to that time and that subject? Well, being born in the 80s means, I mean, I was very young when all this was going on. So it was a very different experience for me watching these films. I wasn't kind of experiencing them in the way say Enid the lead of censor experiences them at all I wasn't kind of seeing the the daily mail articles and and things like that but I did grow up watching things like the evil dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre but actually the first um place I started with with censor was actually censorship and the idea of um you know if if violent images are supposed to make us commit violent acts what is it that prevents the censor from losing control and it started as quite a silly idea in my head and I delved into the world of censorship and I kind of went right back to the beginning of censorship in the UK but the most exciting uh, era for me is the 80s because of the moral panic around these particular films. Let me just ask you so how old were you when you saw like Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw? I think by the time I saw them, I was probably at least 13, I would say. But my first experience of censorship was actually seeing Simon Bates um, introduce a film. And it was a 12. And I think I was probably about eight. And we'd rented it from the video shop. And I'd never seen this guy before Simon Bates who'd introduced the classification and he was sat behind this desk you know looking all bespectacled and in a suit and very official and he said it is an offence for anybody under the age of 12 to watch this film and something about being prosecuted and I was completely terrified and I thought that my mum was going to be arrested for letting me watch the film so I ran into her saying mum they're going to come and get you you know it's really scared of authority so um so you know I I didn't find the film scary I just found Simon Bates scary I was fine watching at 12 or 8 because I actually knew the difference between fiction and reality um and so I guess that was kind of my first experience and that always, I started to think about that a lot when I was making Sensor. Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. To help you, there are certificates given to films which tell you broadly what the film is like. This film has been classified 18, which means it's for adults only. It's an offence for your shop to supply an 18 video to anyone under that age, so don't ask them to break the law. An 18 film will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. The video certificates are there to give you the chance to make an informed choice. They allow you to have peace of mind and be entertained. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the film. Uh, you, you said at the uh, a little bit earlier on, you said, um, you know, if these films have this effect on, on audiences, why don't they on censors? I remember having a conversation with Kim many years ago in which Kim said, Kim, I'm paraphrasing. You said, the only way I would believe in film censorship is if James Furman came out of a screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and immediately killed his secretary, then I would believe in the cause and effect of it. <laughs> and I rem remember, you know, being very involved in those 
incredibly heated debates which happened they began in the 80s they carried on through into the 90s and through the you know the, the amendment the public order act and all that stuff so kim how did you get involved because obviously you are the person that someone would turn to on this subject <laughs> um i i got involved because i know prano i i um yeah, I, I contributed a certain something to her earlier short film on the subject, Nasty, um, in, in which I very briefly appear as a, as a picture being arrested. Thank you very much. Um, and she told me she was uh, making this. Uh, I have to say, I, I mean, I now know what an executive producer does, which after all these years in the in, in the cinema business, I was a bit iffy on. Uh, <laughs> and I know, and I know uh, that, that my contribution has mostly been, I think, what we could call moral support. <laughs> um, and after every cut I saw, I said, couldn't it be more violent? Um, I, I, I remember saying that the, 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 something about the decapitations mm. needed more, more head choppery stuff. But... Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I was 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 drawn into Prano's world, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm uh, yeah enormously proud of of, uh, of what she has achieved with this uh, her, uh, yeah first feature. I, I think it's an extraordinary work as well. But as I say it's it's and here's another thing which is unique about this film: I can't review it. Um, yeah, because unlike, you're credited on unlike it. Unlike everything else, yeah, uh, every other film I've seen, you'll never see a review uh, <laughs> from me about this. Uh, except, of course, Prano has, because I sent her notes. Firstly, I should say, Kim, that that's absolutely right. And it's it's completely correct that, 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 that you shouldn't review a film that you that you are a credited uh, consultant on. And I, you know, I applaud you take it, because obviously that's right. I mean, we all remember... The problems that ensued when the uh, the BBC's film review show was presented by somebody who was very, very closely connected to one of the films that they were reviewing, and you mm. know, and they kind of had to get around it by saying, "I have to say, I have a connection." To which the answer is, "Well, don't do it then." <laughs> but but it is it it is. I mean, I remember I remember once coming out at the end of uh, the screening of Funny Man. <laughs> And at the very, very end of the funny man credits, it says thanks to a whole bunch of people. And amongst those people is me and Nigel Floyd, for no reason other than that we'd gone on set to um, to write about the film for Fangoria magazine. And I remember saying to Nigel, does that mean we can't review the film? And Nigel's saying, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Prano, on the... Um, on the subject of you know uh, censorship and particularly around that time, if you are of my age and you remember the you know the incredible sense of moral panic that was going on, one of the things that your film manages to get really on the nose is although there's a kind of sense of you know chaos when it comes to what the censors are doing, it's a really strange box ticking affair of reduce hacking by three hacks take down sight of bloody stump spurting blood by one stump how did you research all that stuff um well the first place we went funnily enough was the bbfc who um were really i imagine they were, they very were helpful. really helpful and i hope they like the film you know, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it represents their work doesn't it in so many ways and it's such a unique job you know it's not like 
many people do this. And at the time, I think there were nine film censors, you know, in the whole country. Um, so Anthony Fletcher, who I co-wrote the script with, and I went to the BBFC and David Hyman and Catherine Anderson talked to us there. And we were able to have a look at some of the files and that was kind of our starting point. But then I did find film censors who'd worked at the time. So Carol Topolsky was one of the people I spoke to quite a lot and was helpful as well. When, when we got to the rehearsal stages, she talked to Neve about the role. Um, so it was kind of like you write something and then you go and speak to somebody like that and then you come back and you're always trying to get it kind of right in terms of making it as accurate as possible, but then obviously you're making a film. So, you know, you have to make it interesting as well. Sure. I mean, one of the things that, that stands out is, obviously the time that the film is set is in the is in the height of the Furman years. The BBFC now is unrecognisable from the BBFC under James Furman. During the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, I think we all just had a constant battle with the BBFC. I think that ever since... They basically changed in the at the end of the century. They have become. I, I think they are now the most open and accountable classification body anywhere in the world. But they were before dogged with this weird thing of having James Furman, who was absolutely in control of everything mm. and was very, very concerned about what the media thought about everything. Was very against letting journalists have access to files. I mean, even getting a straight answer about is The Exorcist banned on video? I mean, it took me six years to get somebody in the BBFC to say, OK, officially, no, but actually, yes. And I think that the thing that the film does get right is that strange sense of a almost like a... It's almost like a cult, that group of senses. It's almost like a cult. Didn't you feel that? Yeah, I mean, that's another... You've just given me a whole new idea for a film. <laughs> turn them into a cult but yeah absolutely I mean it was just fascinating reading the way they looked at films and one of the one of my favorite files obviously having already already mentioned the evil dead was the file for the evil dead um, because you read all the things they're saying about the film at the time and then eight years later or so, they revisit The Evil Dead that's been cut. It was never on the video nasty band list, but it was heavily cut. And one of the same examiners is reacting, saying, I can't believe we reacted like this. But it was, you know, the, the atmosphere at the time was so paranoid. We were viewing these films in a totally different way. And I found that really interesting that there was that kind of, you know, consciousness looking back uh, how the world around the census office was affecting, you know, the way they were looking at this work. So that was what we were always trying to balance with Enid was, you know, how does your work change if, if you know, the world is telling you all this stuff? How, do, how is your reality shaped or your perception shaped by things like the media as well? I fear that the only way to stop those possessed by the spirits of the book is through the act of bodily dismemberment. I don't care what happens to her. She's your girlfriend, you take care of her. But the Evil Dead is a particular case for me because um, I was finally slipped the papers before they were kind of you know officially released and i as you quite rightly say when it first came in 
actually Furman I think originally thought well we might be able to pass it uncut because he thought it was funny but there was there was an examiner who said that they felt that they had been physically assaulted by it and they ended up cutting quite a lot out of the the version that, that, that was released and yet even after that because it had got caught up in the video nasty scare because there had been prosecutions I mean obviously at Snaresbrook they famously won a case but there was cases that they lost the reason for ages it was unavailable but was because they were terrified of passing something that had been caught up in all that and I did an interview with Furman um, when they finally passed a, a second cut version, an even more cut version than the first cut version. And he used this phrase. He said, the difficult thing is trying to cut something that is designed to be over the top so that it's still over the top, but not that over the top. And that seemed to me to be kind of the perfect embodiment of what he what they were trying to do, which was impossible Finally, years later, when it was finally passed uncut, it was Adam at, uh, at um, uh, Channel 4 who was finally responsible for the submission that got through. And I'm proud to say that in this office, I have the official uncut BBFC signed certificate for the first time it was completely cleared, 18, because Adam, who did all the stuff at, at, at Film 4 and Extreme Cinema, was the person finally responsible for getting it through. But that idea of a, of those of the world changing what your film is about is about the central character changing because of because of what they see which is a very kind of david cronenberg videodrome kind of idea isn't it yeah i guess it is um and it's interesting to think about it like that because it's always the tension when you make a film that's about someone viewing something and then them are they being affected by what they're watching or is it the real world that's affected them already and I guess that's the kind of tension that we're playing with in the film and I think because of that it can be read in different ways some people are going to come away from the film and I, I did think some people might come away and go oh you know horror films are so bad for us <laughs> um, which is fine um, uh, but you know hopefully people will see the the wink in that as well and and other people will read something completely different that's more about about trauma. Cronenberg always said that the that Videodrome for him was a film that said, "What if the senses are right? Yeah, you know what 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 if it's true that if we watch this stuff, we will develop a VCR hole in our stomach, and James Woods will end up being sucked into a television screen?" And I always loved that idea, which is let's create a reality that's actually based on the idea that the senses are right. Kim, presumably, you were you offering advice about the recreation of those movies? I mean, yeah, I, one of the things that I, I talked to Priano a bit about was um, because there's, this, uh, there's an unusual circumstance in Sensor for, for plot reasons, the film that Enid becomes obsessed with or the filmmaker Enid becomes obsessed with has to be British. And there weren't that many people in Britain making video nasties. I know, was it Killer's Moon is on the list, isn't it? Which is this really strange 70s film. And I, I remember um, pointing Prano to Extro, um, which was a low-budget British horror film made around that time. And a few of the other sort of really much more obscure British filmmakers who went out and did these sort of, quite often they were people who normally made porn, yeah. who got bored with that and just wanted to make one slasher movie. And, and you've got these things that crept out on video or um, that, remember that movie made uh, Suffer Little Children made by a stage school. Oh. Um, yeah. Yes. And, it, and I, I thought, you know, so I did, uh, as I say, I pointed 
uh, the way towards that kind of aesthetic for when we get to the film within a film. Mm. Um, so, Prano, how much more of that film did you write? I mean, could you actually now <laughs> release a, yeah, a, a Frederick North um, film? Maybe, um, yeah, if we went back through all the drafts, we might find, like, a little bit more of a Frederick North's film. But it's true. I mean, there's... I mean, there's a... tempted to write the whole thing and just go out and shoot it over a weekend. Oh, we know? felt that. I remember me and my editor, Mark Towns, like, whenever we'd be cutting things like Don't Go in the Church or Asunder, so the scene of the films within the film we'd be like oh wouldn't it be great just to go out and make a video nasty because he's a massive video <laughs> nasty fan too so yeah there is the temptation but um there is a snippet of frightmare in the in the title sequence mm -hmm. so it was oh, those yes. films were it was yeah. tricky because obviously most most of those directors were sort of italian and you know mm. um but it would have been a different it for me it had to stay british um, and you did deliberately not reference real films. All the films that mm. Enid looks at or even talks about are made up by you. Yeah, and that, that and all the filmmakers. That was a decision that we made when we made Nasty, the short film, because there's obviously there's a number of factors in here. One is the obvious copyright factor, which is a boring factor. Two is the fact that the people like you guys who know about these films know every single detail. So if we <laughs> were to put in, you know, if we wanted to put the evil dead in Nasty and Nasty set in 1980, you know, people are going to say, oh, well, that didn't have, you know, that version wasn't out then or, you know, it, was, it wasn't cut like that. Or, so it was kind of an avoidance of all these uh, finickety facts that cult horror fans know inside out and will potentially pull them out of the story. But also because it's just so much fun to, like, create fake titles and mm -hmm. it gives you a lot more, like, um, creative leeway, I think, to, to be making mm -hmm. this stuff up. Because all your fake titles and fake films are quite convincing. I mean, they're not parodic in that kind of, you know, trauma way, are they? I mean, I, I believe that these films could exist. <laughs> well, maybe that can be the, you know, the DVD extras or the Blu-ray extras, no, right. <laughs> like the whole of Asunder. <laughs> it is also, I have to say, a really good idea to, you know, to avoid, exactly as you're saying, to avoid the attentions of the, of, of the nerdily inclined. Because... There was part of me that relaxed when I realised that that was happening because it was kind of okay. You, you, you know, sit back. You're in safe. They're not going to suddenly start saying this happened in that film. And you're going to go, oh, well, actually, it didn't happen. <laughs> and and actually, one of the, I mean, funnily enough, you know, Kim and I have had this discussion before. One of the weird things about the video nasties list was it did make us all watch a bunch of films that otherwise we really probably would have struggled to find the time to get through. I mean, when... in, in Yeah, I've seen I Miss You, Hugs and Kisses, <laughs> uh, which is a title that's on the Video Nasties list, presumably because somebody in some video shop somewhere thought that it was going to be, I don't know, a romantic film. And it turns out to be a film with one scene of violence. Um, and otherwise, it's a very ordinary, rather dull melodrama. But I've watched it purely because somebody won. Called it a video nasty. Two months ago, Charles Cushion, millionaire husband of former model Magdalene Cushion, offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the capture of his wife's murderer. Today, through a dramatic turn of events, Cushion himself has been charged with the brutal slaying of his wife, Magdalene Cushion, who was found bludgeoned to death in her home. 
Charles Kirsch and her husband was charged with the murder and later released on a $100,000 bond. Why would I want to kill her when, obviously, divorce is, is the sensible way out? All she is is a money-grubbing little nothing. It's not twenty-four; it's $27,000 with all the extras in it. Goddamn little whore. Well, I mean, the the weird thing is that the you know the so-called Big Sixty list, list which was actually seventy-two anyway, and was was it appeared in the monthly film bulletin, which was the lot you know the, no, I yeah that. the yeah. that long <laughs> list. Okay, so that list I never know why it's referred to as the Big Sixty because it's seventy anyway. That list which included the titles on you know what was then later referred to as the video nasty list, mm. and then as you quite rightly say, a whole bunch of titles when the police had gone in. And it impounded a bunch of titles. And quite often what would happen with video dealers is that they would just say, OK, fine, we won't contest it. We'll just take a, you know, a, and then every single title that was impounded was then listed as an impoundable title. But I had, I mean, the, the list that we ran in the monthly film bulletin, actually a, a journalist friend of mine got from the, uh, the DPP, and it was the list that went to the, yeah. the police who were raiding video shops. And the thing about it, it was, it was just a typewritten list of titles. There was nothing to say, you know, under death trap. It didn't say, make sure it's Toby Hooper's death <laughs> trap. <laughs> yes, not yes. that Michael Caine film with yeah. Christopher Reeve. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and it was full of things like that. And some of the titles were slightly wrong. And in fact, I mean, when we were doing the that piece from the monthly film bulletin, it was me and Julian Petley, who's another big researcher in the era. We actually had to look at these things and, and check. And there were, I think there's one case where we just completely failed to see what the film that the, the this was referring to was. I think it was like... Um, the Beast. We assumed it was the Barovchik film, and it turned out not to be that. It's a Nazi film called The Beast in Heat. Mm. Uh, but so, and so that's one of those cases where what we published was full of gaps and says subject to further research. And we were like actually committed film researchers. You can't expect your average plod who's been told, yeah, just go down the video shop and haul off their <laughs> shelves. Yeah, the, the, any of these films. You can't expect them to. And and so you had those things where people would, yeah, the police would go in and, and get Cannibal Apocalypse and Apocalypse Now yeah. mixed up. And we all laugh at that. But frankly, if it's not your job, primarily, yeah, if you you don't spend much time going to movies or whatever. Um, and, the, and the police were much more interested in, in the under-the-counter porn <laughs> than, the, uh, than the horror films that were out there on display. Yeah. I loved. Uh, I loved this. Yeah. I loved the story about um, you know that that they released that uh, statistic that was it sort of seven in ten primary school children have watched these video nasties. <laughs> so somebody went out with a list of fake video nasty titles yeah. and interviewed all these school kids, and they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've watched that. I've watched that." Because no one wanted to look like they hadn't seen the scary film in front of their mates. I just thought that sums <laughs> it up in so many ways. I mean, but the other thing about that time was, of course, you know, Martin Barker published, you know, the book, the video nasties, and he. I remember him writing at the beginning of it saying, "You know, this is a discussion taking place in occupied territory." And actually, by the time the book was out, I think, you know, the the uh, the Video Recordings Act had already been barreled through because originally there was a whole thing about self-regulation, which which looked like it could do it. But then it did get barreled through. 
But people writing about that stuff at the time was considered to be, you know, you could get the tabloid journalists could get on your back. I mean, academics or people who were serious saying, mm. actually, I think some of these movies are defensible, would find tabloid journalists on, you know, doorstepping them. And uh, Yeah, and I think we'd all, uh, we all at some point, like, went on one of those annoying Channel 4 debate programs <laughs> where there'd be a whole room full of people and there'd be, like, some sort of censorship campaign, pro-campaigners. There were, like, people from the festival light who'd never seen any of the films and then there would be the sort of the really difficult ones there would be like somebody who had had someone in their family be a victim of a crime who then was going to try and blame it on on and it's like you're trying to be sympathetic to someone who's had a horrible horrible experience you think well there are other reasons for crime yeah you know? uh, and then there'd always be somebody dressed up as an executioner at the back or something <laughs> because they always would like haul the the most kind of um eccentric horror films i think you can find on youtube lots oh, of yeah. clips of They've... me and alan jones and stephanie watson yeah. and Anne bilson suffering through these long, agonising evenings. They've been a staple diet of my research, actually, you know, just watching that stuff. And I I have to thank all credit to Mark, because he stuck with it longer than I did. It's like they got to be a point where I would get phoned up and they would say, "Uh, would you uh, like to come onto our programme to discuss censorship? And I'd say, frankly, no. (laughs) It's like I, I, I feel I have said everything I want to say on this subject. You're not going to change my mind, but I know I'm also not going to change anyone else's. But you also, you and, also, and, as far as I remember, you said, frankly, no, but here's Mark Kermo's phone number. Yeah, that's <laughs> I also did that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you say, yeah, uh, Martin said that thing about occupied territory. But here's the thing. What happened, it was an armistice, not a victory at the end, mm-hmm. the Video Recordings Act. It didn't actually solve anything, any of these issues. Um, and it took years to get to something approaching uh, a reasonable situation. And what in the end broke the dam wasn't like some huge change of mind on the on the part of the censurious who'd moved on to other things that they were now annoyed about. What changed their minds was the Internet was suddenly uh, access to visual material from all around the world became so much easier. And it's like, uh, you, you, you you think of the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dam, in the hole in the dam, surrounded by thousands of other leaks. And it's like the the struggle to stay abreast of the, the sort of you know, maelstrom of information out there has rendered the, you know, the job of censor kind of, yeah, uh, sort of, almost quaint in its strange old-fashioned uh, term. And of course, it's the job of classifier now. Which, which, uh, And the thing is, I fully approve of that. And I 100% support the notion of classifying films and, you know, uh, at least regulating some form of, of what people are exposed to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. No one's going to pick this up and think it's a documentary. It's so fake. For you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly. Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is exactly what new government guidelines are pointing at. Video technology More is changing the rules. guidelines. Great. Not as if we haven't got enough on our hands. How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? OK, I get it. But I'm afraid... We're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track, please? Consensus on cannibal carnage. Reject. I agree. Few cuts. I'd pass it. Enid. Brian, let me ask you, in terms of uh, making sense, I love the soundtrack of it. I love the way the film sounded. I mean, everything from the sound design to the way in which you've used the music. And I, I think I sent you a message after I'd seen it, immediately asking, where can I get hold of this and what is that? And, <laughs> and uh, so tell me about the sound design of the film, because that's so important to, to the feel of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of think in sound when I'm writing. So there were a lot of... Um, elements of sound that were kind of written into the script. And one of my ways into thinking about the censors office soundscape was um, Watership Down, which is quite a weird inspiration for a film like this, but um, well, maybe not. It's also, you know, it's pretty violent, but the inspiration was really the, the rabbit warrens and this idea of, you know, the censors being almost in like a version of the rabbit warrens, they're underground, but instead of the whispers of other voices of rabbits coming down the corridors, it's the screams of people dying in films in the rooms next door. So I was always talking about this and my sound designer, Tim Harrison, and I have worked on a lot of my earlier projects together. So I was talking to Tim about all this stuff and he actually in it before we even started shooting the film he went off and uh he makes music as well so he designed the soundscape and scores for i don't know a handful of maybe 20 or more um fake video nasty titles um so he sort of sent me all this stuff and he made little films like visual films for them as well and they're called things like brain splitters and run rabbit run they've all got names and so we kind of had this body um of of films to kind of pick and choose from and and then you know when emily levanese farouche the composer came on board i immediately brought her and tim together because for me, it's like a collaboration, you know, sound and music. And we were always talking about how could we, is there a way to overlap any sounds? And is there a way for, you know, certain elements to become part of the music and things like that? 
Um, so they collaborated amazingly together and Emily went and spent some time at Tim's studio. He's got lots of um, like classic old uh, original synths and things that were used. Um, but, but the challenge, I guess, with the music um, was always when you're making a film set during this period that's about these films, how much do you lean into the style of that era, you know? Um, and we always wanted to kind of have a nod towards it, but for it not to take over the film, because otherwise, again, you're kind of pulled out of Enid's story. So, you know, it, there could be a version of the soundtrack that's like very Carpenter-esque, but when Emily kind of first sent me a piece of her music and we put it to picture, it just felt like she'd kind of tuned into Enid's trauma in this incredible way. She used her voice for a lot of a lot of it. And she her process is to watch the film over and over and over again and kind of tune into the lead character and then almost turn that into the music. So she's just so, so clever, so talented. Um, so she was sending us this, this stuff that just drew us into Enid's journey. And then we were looking at like, how do we, you know, bring alive the kind of era without pulling us away from that emotional sort of journey of the character. I love her work. I mean, I, I've played her work on Scala many times beforehand, and I was delighted to see that she was she was doing this. And the, the, after I watched the film, I got in touch with her and said, "Look, can you send me the score because it's not been released yet?" And um, she said, "Well, I can do it privately. I can send you a you know." And I was listening to it and thinking, "It is it, it is a, a brilliant example of how the film comes from the sound up." Which you know, for so many of us, that is how you experience film. Also, there is a brilliant use of this piece of music by Blank Mass. I sent you a mm. message saying, "This is driving me nuts. This is absolutely where have I heard that piece of music before?" And quite coincidentally, Blank Mass's score for Calm with Horses was my favourite film score of last year. And you mm. said, "Oh, well, it's this piece." So tell me about that piece and where some where somebody might have heard it before. So the track is called Chernobyl and someone may have heard it on a Ben Wheatley film before. Um, but when I was writing Censor, um, there was one weekend where I just discovered that album and I literally sat and, and had that album on repeat and was just writing the film. And it was, again, it's like you kind of find a way into a project sometimes through different things and like, like with the census office and Watership Down, like there was something about writing the end and the kind of weird, beautiful expansiveness of that track that just takes you to another planet. And again, it's one of those things that you just put it with the imagery and it was kind of glued together. Um, so yeah, so that's used at a certain point. And um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an immense track. It, it is, it's immense. It's absolutely immense and it's perfectly chosen. And just, uh, Tell me something about your cast. I mean, obviously, you know, Nevi's so, so, so brilliant. Um, so tell me about casting the central roles. Yeah, I mean, 
me and Neve actually met um, before we met in the audition room. So we were on the Screen International Stars of Tomorrow, uh, the same kind of year group. So we actually met, we met there and I never knew that this was going to be the person who'd become Enid, which is kind of weird looking back at it now. But um, we'd sort of started the casting process and I, I knew I've got like these notes from pre-casting that I'd written down that were things like we need to find someone we can't look away from. And, you know, because ultimately whoever played Enid needed to carry the whole film because you're in her head and you're you're in someone's head. But that person isn't expressing themselves clearly. You know, she doesn't as a character, she's not hugely open. I mean, we tried to. um kind of embody the idea of censorship within this character. So she's emotionally very censored, but at the same time, she's um, reading information through the film in a very specific way. And we need the audience to be with that person. So I was really looking for somebody who could, you know, bring that nuance and that um, clarity, I guess, to the performance, but also someone we just can't stop looking at. And then Neve came in and um, basically was that person. And I think it was the, the moment that I was like, yes, with her was when she, oh, she read this scene. And I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give too much away, but on paper, it's a very emotional scene. And on paper, it was just one line. And Neve just, I couldn't believe where she went with it emotionally, you know, because you're going, you need somebody who's going to be this kind of coiled spring very kind of repressed at the beginning, but emotionally where they go is very extreme. And she was just able to take us on that journey, um, but also is just such a lovely person. So, you know, you're working with an actor in every single scene, um, pretty much. She's, she's in every single scene, except for when it's her younger self, <laughs> um, uh, you know, so, you know, having somebody like Neve to work with who was just hilarious when the camera stopped rolling, she'd kind of come out and just keep me sort of sane with her hilarious madness. Um, it was brilliant to work with her, amazing. I saw um, some photographs of you on set and I didn't recognise her because she's smiling in them. <laughs> yeah. And it's like in her whole career, I don't think I've ever seen her smile. But yeah. it's, remar um, it's remarkable because, I mean, obviously, you know, she's so brilliant in, in, in Calm With Horses and she is, she is such a great performer, not least because she looks completely different from role to role. Yeah. And I mean, because this is, this is what actors do. They inhabit different <laughs> yeah. people. You know, in America, they call them character actors. And here we call them actors because that's what yeah. you do. You inhabit the role. But I, I thought she was... I thought she did a really brilliant job of giving you the sense that she's keeping everything within. It's a, you know, she's not telegraphing the stuff. She's keeping it within because that's, you know, her job and her personal life is all to do with just keeping everything, you know, mm. down. As you said before, it's about, you know, it's about trauma and the return of the repressed and you know, yeah. all that stuff, which, which horror fans love to <laughs> love to talk about at great length. Um, Kim, from your point of view, this is your first exec producer credit? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, it's like I have, I have like contractual uh, credits on a whole bunch of projects uh, because when you sell rights to things, they always say, oh, we'll make you a producer as well. This is the first time I've ever actually um, 
had, you know, had any involvement in anything which was not uh, out of my head, as it were. And uh, you must, so, yeah. you must be, you must be very, very proud of the result because the, the thing. Oh, extraordinarily! Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 um, I wouldn't have agreed to take uh, <laughs> to sign up this project if I didn't believe it in the first place. Um, I've. Um, so I've followed Prano's work for some years now, <laughs> uh, and I hope I've been a, a, a supporter of oh, it massively. from uh, her earlier um, short films. I mean, I, I, I think in fact I, I met you because I'd seen a short film of yours, yeah. isn't it? And you came to a party. Yeah, That's you, right. you yes. selected um, Short Lease, which was a film, I think I made it in 2010, and you selected it for the Critics' Choice uh in it was like the critics choice in a mm -hmm. film festival in prague and then That's you invited right, yeah. me and and the co-director um jennifer ice we came to your party mm -hmm. and then you yeah. were mass have been massively supportive like throughout all of yeah it's, he's a it's a good guy and prano did, what, what does it what does it, what does it mean to the film to have kim's name attached to it well i mean it's huge for for you know, right from the offset. I mean, Kim Kim says, you know, he's, what he's just said, but he didn't know what this film would be at the point when he came on board as an exec because we hadn't even written a draft. He kind of put his name to it. And um, that, because of the, the subject matter, you know, and like you say, I wasn't around then, apart from as a tiny, <laughs> tiny person. Um, it, it's like a incredibly valuable stamp of approval and also like an encyclopedic knowledge of this period that you can sort of you know go and say hey Kim what, you know what about this or what about you know so not just in terms of just having somebody like Kim's name um, attached to the project but also the you know the the advice along the way and everything it's really and I have like made you watch films. I think that's my main um, contribution. Kim introduced yeah. me to my favourite, one of my favourite horror films, Let's Get Jessica to Death, which um, I made Neve watch in preparation for this. Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Censor is a very different film, but this yeah. idea of I own the um, I own the censor certificate from Let's <laughs> oh, yeah, Get. Yeah, remember, yeah. Uh, which, if you remember, um, uh, because Mark actually interviewed me at that. It was an event to launch uh, the latest edition of Nightmare Movies, uh, where Mark interviewed me and we showed Let's Get Jessica. Yeah, Day. and the, a guy who worked at Paramount came and gave me the the, um, <laughs> the certificate, uh, which I thought was a really sweet gesture. It's framed and it's up in my kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I remember I, uh, 
um, we saw Dead of Night together yeah. as well. That's another really sort of, uh, interesting uh, older horror film. Yeah. So I feel, I feel that's partly, but yeah, my job is to yes, exactly to, take me yeah, and I miss I'm, is to make you watch depressing films. <laughs> oh, I was, it's one of my favourite things to do already, but I get to do it with Kim Newman now. But it, yeah, I'm looking forward oh, to going to the yeah. cinema with you again. Yes, no, that's right. That's one thing we've all missed. You know, certainly I've missed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, to both of you, congratulations. I mean, I think the film's just great. I mean, it's. I know we're only in whatever it is, February, but it's one of my favourite films of the year. I guarantee you, by the time we get to the end of the year, it's going to be in my, you know, in, in my top films list. When can people in the UK see it? Has it does it have a UK distributor? Um, we are in the process right now of, of uh, signing pieces of paper, so I can't say at this stage, but hopefully the news will be out soon, possibly by the time podcast okay. is out and do, do you have any idea when we might because already i'm getting i mean i know obviously but people are saying when can i see this because it did create quite a splash at sundance well the next stop for the film is the berlin film festival which is really exciting um so that's now the audience facing part of that is in june um and i don't want to say too much at this stage about when it might uh it might be appearing in the uk um because we don't know for sure yet but I really hope it's not going to be too long for people over here. Yeah, we also don't know if there will be cinemas or if there will be a UK. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> so it's all contingent it's, on that. That small matter. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, ca- I, can't, and, I can't wait for people to get I the chance to see it. Link, and I, but I have seen um, a version on a big screen. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I, I think that um, it's going to be a film that... that will actually have an impact on people if they see it in a cinema. Uh, I think it works really well as a kind of home experience because it's sort of intimate and creepy. But I think um, seeing it with a crowd is is going to be quite something. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to people being able to see it, not least because I can, it means I can actually talk to them about it. Oh. Uh, but congratulations, Prado. It's, it's, it's just, it's, just, it's, it's great. And, you know, and, uh, and I'm not just saying, I mean, I asked you to come on the podcast because I loved it. And believe me, if I hadn't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have invited you on. <laughs> and Kim knows as well that, um, I just, well, you you know what my reaction was, Kim, because I got straight in touch with you. I mean, I just, I just love it. Oh, I think it's you. really, really something and i you know congratulations to, to to both of you and i you know i can't wait for other people to see it because it's a it's a exceptional piece of work so thank you so yeah, much we're going to be talking about this film all year <laughs> we are yeah and it, i mean that's the thing we are going to be talking about it all year which is why i want people to see it um, but you know whenever you know whenever the time is ready kim prano thank you so much congratulations very much on the movie thanks everybody for listening if you've enjoyed this you can go to the patreon page and you can see a video uh, of us me uh, in my shoe cupboard Prano in a very nicely organised room and Kim, well, in in the room of bookshelves. And uh, remember, tell your friends, subscribe, do all the usual stuff. Uh, Thanks ever so much for listening and uh, come back next week. Keep watching this, guys. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 